Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, great to have you with us. I am, so, some of you just got that. Uh, I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Park, and it is great to have you here. If you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Especially want to say a huge welcome to our kids. Um, it is a really special privilege to have you all in service with us. Um, our hope for you as a, as a church, um, as the, the grown-ups, as the old folks in the, in the congregation, um, our hope for you is that you would grow up to know and love Jesus. And inviting you into this gathering to have you as part of our services with some kind of regularity is, is part of growing up in the Lord. And so we love having you here and uh, really glad that you are with us this morning. Now, how many of you are into video games? Who likes video games? All right. Any, any gamers? Um, yeah. My kids are raising their hands. Um, Yeah, so you gamers know that in certain games, there's this feature where you can actually build your own character, right? So so I know this is true of uh, some sports games like FIFA and Madden, and I think it's true for some other games too, maybe like uh, like Mario Kart, you can customize some stuff, right? But this feature, it allows you to build your own character with the ideal profile that you want for this person. So you get a certain number of points overall and you can allocate them as you see fit. So you might max out speed but sacrifice a little bit of power. Or you may go all in on decision making but give up a little bit of agility, right? So so you kind of create your own character as you see is best. Now I want to throw a question out to you this morning. If you were to build an ideal character, an ideal person in real life, what quality or qualities would you max out? If you were to build the ideal person, what quality or qualities would you go all in on? Like what's most important in a person? Is it looks or smarts? Is it athleticism or musical ability? Is it uh, eloquence or power? What do you max out to make the ideal person? Well, today we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And weddings have made 1 Corinthians 13 really, really famous. When I was about six years old, I actually memorized this chapter to recite it at my aunt and uncle's wedding. And a few years ago, Tripp, my oldest son, actually did the same thing at my brother's wedding. So, uh, and I'd, I'd imagine, I know many of you had these verses read at your weddings. And while weddings are a great application of 1 Corinthians 13, weddings are not what Paul had in mind when he wrote these words. This section, the section of Paul's letter we've been walking through, and John and Phil talked through this the last couple weeks, this section is all about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 12, Paul lays out what those gifts are, and he affirms that every Christian, every believer in Christ, has certain spiritual gifts. And yet chapter 12 ends with these words. The final line of chapter 12 says, I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul is saying that there's something better, something more excellent than any kind of gifts that we've been given. And chapter 13 is that something. And so Paul's purpose in our text today is to highlight a singular quality that is always more excellent and most important in a follower of Christ. This text is a tribute to the one quality that always needs to be maxed out in our own characters, in our own lives. So read it with me. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verses 1 through 13. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am 
nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for your word. Some of the most beautiful words ever penned in the history of the world. And today I pray that you would speak through these words to our hearts. Would we hear your voice? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, especially for our kids today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the one quality that needs to be maxed out? What is it? Love. Pretty obvious, right? The word love shows up nine times in these verses, and this text is all about love. And Paul begins in verse 1 by showing the priority of love. He writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so if I have the gift of tongues where I can pray in heavenly languages, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. All my speech is just obnoxious noise. And some of you parents are very familiar with obnoxious noise. You know what that is like. Verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am what? What's the word there? Nothing. I am nothing. So did you catch the math on that? Help me out with this math here, okay? So you'll see an equation up here. All mysteries plus all knowledge plus all faith minus love. Who's good at math? What does that equal? Nothing. Thank you, Trip. Good job. Yeah, nothing. It equals nothing. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, so I'm, I'm more generous than Bill Gates, who's given away billions of dollars. Give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, so I'm so courageous and zealous that I'm willing to be martyred for my faith, but I'm lacking in love, I gain Nothing. Nothing. So Paul's point in these opening verses is that love is greater than all our gifts, all our abilities, all our efforts, all of everything. Love is the most excellent thing. So you can be maxed out in any and every other category, but without love, you are worthless. You are nothing and you have nothing without love. So in these first three verses, Paul goes all in on love. But that begs the question, what is love? What is love? Now, our culture loves the idea of love. Love is everywhere. Um, since the 1960s, to my children's dismay, because they think love is kind of gross, um, 
since the 1960s, about two-thirds of all top 40 love songs, or top 40 songs across the board have been love songs. Almost all of our pop music is about love. Dating apps form a multi-billion dollar industry. And then shows like Love Island and The Bachelor, uh, kids, don't ask your parents about those later, don't do it. Um, Shows like that suck in millions of viewers every week. So we love love. But as those reality shows and many of those songs that we hear make abundantly clear, culturally, we don't really have much of an idea what love actually is. If you go to Google Images and you do a search for love, this is what you'll see. Kind of looks like Valentine's Day threw up all over the internet. And if you were to pay attention to the way we use the word love in day-to-day language and, and interactions, you'd notice that we love quite the wide array of things. So for example, for me personally, I love my wife Kinsey and I love the Cleveland Browns. One of those is a lot easier to love than the other. I love the game of basketball and I love Oberweiss cookies and cream milkshakes. I love my children and I love Jordans. Yeah, my birthday is coming up too. Just, yeah. um, but what is love? So what is love? Well, check this out, okay? This, this is the uh, Greek word that is translated love throughout our passage today. And I need, I need some of the kids to help me out here, okay? So kids, does anyone want to take a shot at reading this? What do you think this says? Nope. Love, you are correct. You are correct. That is, that is the right answer. Anybody else? Anybody, want to help? Anybody, anybody think they can read this? What does this say? Agape. Agape. Thank you to our child on the right. Um, yes, agape. So you may have heard this word before. It's probably the best known of all the ancient Greek words in the church today. So agape. But before the New, New we, know, we know it today. We've heard that word today. But before the New Testament era, agape was actually a relatively uncommon word. In Greek, its basic meaning is a warm regard or interest in another. So, so it's like, I like you. I think you're interesting. I, I like being around you. Like, that's kind of the sense. And in the first century, it was a very generic word. It was just kind of day-to-day language, and it wasn't super common. But what happened is that the early Christians took this uncommon word with that relatively basic meaning, and they made it their preferred word for love. So in total, agape, this word, it shows up 116 times in the New Testament. 75 times in Paul's letters alone. And in many of those instances, what the writers in the New Testament are doing is they're actually defining love for us. They're infusing agape with meaning to tell us what love really is. And so the Bible, one of the things it does is it teaches us what love is. And that's what Paul does in verses 4 through 7. Paul gives us a definition, a picture of what love is and what love is not. So here in verses 4 through 7, there are 15 statements about love. And seven of these are positive and eight of them are negative. And Paul puts them together kind of like a hamburger. Starts with like two, a thin little bun on the bottom of two positives. Then he sticks a fat patty of eight negatives in the middle. And then he tops it off with five more positives for the bun on top. And this picture of love is actually like a mirror that Paul holds up to, our, to us. He wants us to hold it up to ourselves and look at ourselves. So he's told us about the priority of love, that without love, we are nothing. And here he's giving us this picture of love and he wants us to hold it up and take a good look at ourselves in light of this picture. Like, is this what we look like? Does our love look like this kind of love? 
So as I take us into this picture this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to take a good long look at yourself. Is this you? Is this what your life looks like? Is this the way that you love the people around you? So Paul begins, love is patient. So love is never in a hurry. It takes its time. He continues, love is kind. It is warm-hearted and considerate and sympathetic. It reaches out with compassion and mercy. So last week I was traveling all week and Kinsey was home with our three boys. And, and some of you, you, while I was away, some of you voluntarily brought meals. You watched our kids. You gave Kinsey a break. You helped out with different things. Like that, that's kindness. You should kindness. Paul then goes on in, to list eight negatives in staccato fashion. And this is what love is not. Love does not envy. It doesn't look with jealousy on others or play the comparison game. Love does not boast. It doesn't brag. It doesn't make a big deal of itself. It is not arrogant. It doesn't look down on others. Verse five, love is not rude. The word here means to behave dishonorably. And so the idea, love doesn't deliberately do things that embarrass other people. Next, love does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It's not all about me. It's not my way or the highway. Love is not irritable. It doesn't have a short fuse. It doesn't blow up on others. Love is not resentful. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't keep a running track of every wrong that's ever been committed against it, just waiting for the chance to exact revenge. Finally, verse six. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So it doesn't look with pleasure on things that are wrong or false or evil or that go against God's good design. On the contrary, and we're back to what love is, love rejoices with the truth. So truth matters to love. And this is really important in our cultural context today. Truth matters to love. Like sometimes love requires you to bring truth into the picture and to confront the other person with truth. So kids, this is why your parents discipline you. And parents, this is why you must discipline your children. Love is not permissiveness where you simply allow the other person to do whatever they want all the time. No, love aligns with truth, with reality, with scripture, with God's word, with God and with how he made the world. And sometimes we need to be corrected. We need to be brought in line with the truth. Now verse seven, in rapid succession, the final four. Love bears all things, so it puts up with some stuff. Love believes all things. It believes God and it loves and love believes the best in others. It believes all things. Love hopes all things. It is optimistic. It looks forward to a brighter and better tomorrow. And finally, love endures all things. Love sticks it out. When times are hard, love doesn't give in and love doesn't give up. It sticks it out. Now, one final observation here on this definition. These statements about love, you'll notice they consist almost entirely of verbs. These are action words. And so while love certainly is a feeling, love is always more than a feeling as well. Love shows itself. Let's quote the title of a popular book, Love Does. It takes action. And y'all, that's the mirror. That's what love is and what love is not. And as you look at this mirror, as you look at this mirror, what do you see? How, how does this compare to your life? How does this compare to what you see in yourself? Does your love look like this? 
You know, if I'm honest, for me personally, my love does not always or even often look like this. Like with Kinsey sometimes, I'll confess that I can be rude with her. Like sometimes I just want what I want and I want her to do what I want her to do. With my boys, I can be impatient. I can have a short fuse with them. It's easy to get angry and just blow up on them when they're being children. In general, I'm pretty prone to comparing myself to others and, 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 uh, and envying what people have that I don't or, or growing prideful when I have something that they don't. I'm not always great at putting love into action. That takes work and sometimes I just don't want to do it. I don't feel like it. And I share those confessions because I suspect this morning that I'm not alone. Any of you relate to that? Anybody else? I mean, the truth is, like the church in Corinth, we all have a tendency to max out other qualities rather than maxing out love. And yet Paul sets this before us to show us a still more excellent way. Because if you have all the gifts in the world, but you don't have love, what are you? Nothing. You're nothing. And this is where Paul brings his treatment of love to its climax. Verse 8 is Paul's thesis statement for the relationship between love and gifts. Now kids, if you don't know what a thesis statement is yet, stay in school because you will learn, I promise you, okay? But this is Paul's main point. In verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But love never ends. And what is Paul saying? Well, in short, he's saying that love is permanent while gifts are not. Love is permanent while gifts are not. So you see this? What is this? This is milk. Yes. Thank you, Summer. This is milk. And this, yes, this is sour milk. And why is it sour? Well, because of the date on there. What is that date? Yes, that's the expiration date. I suppose, it, yeah, it says February 30th, so I suppose this is kind of confusing, right? Yeah, um, that's some milk that's going to last a long time. Yeah, so, but this is an expiration date. I should have checked that better before I put that up there. That's on me. But this is an expiration date. And what that date means, when you see that stamped on a, on a food product, what it means is that after that date, that stuff is no good anymore. After that date, you don't consume it because it's expired. Now, the Corinthians, they were super excited about their gifts. They were boasting in their gifts. They were getting really excited because they had all these supernatural spiritual gifts and they were really loving that gifting. But when you look at verse 8, you see what Paul's saying about all those gifts? He's saying that there's an expiration date on all of them. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, and all the other gifts, they'll all expire, they'll all come to an end. And yet there's one thing that comes without an expiration date. And what is it? It's love. Love never ends. Love has no expiration date. Now look at verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul tells us that even now our gifts are only partial. And then in verse 10, he tells us that one day the partial will be replaced with the perfect. We need to pause here for a second because this phrase, the perfect, is the source of lots of debate. What does Paul mean when he says, when the perfect comes? 
Well, some scholars argue that the perfect has already come. In this view, what Paul was referring to is either the finish of the New Testament, when the New Testament was finished being written, or the maturing of the church at some point in the early centuries uh, after Jesus. And these folks make this argument in order to assert that because the perfect has already come, now the supernatural spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues or prophecy are no longer operative in the church today. So the perfect has come and so the partial has passed away. Those who take this position are known as cessationists. So can you say that word with me? Cessationists. Got it? It's kind of fun to say. Cessationists. Yeah. Cessationists argue that the supernatural gifts have ceased. They've ceased. They've stopped. But when you look at the context of that phrase here in chapter 13, it becomes really obvious that that can't be Paul's position. Notice that in verse 12 in particular, Paul equates the coming of the perfect with seeing face to face. And who do you think Paul and who do you think we are going to see face to face? This is where the Sunday school answer is in fact correct. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the right answer. So what Paul is referencing here when he talks about the perfect coming is the return of Christ. And when Christ returns, that's the expiration date on the spiritual gifts. So right now our gifts are helpful and necessary because we don't yet see Christ face to face. But when Jesus returns, when we finally look him in the eyes, when we talk with him in person, we hear his audible voice, when he comes and we're with him forever and ever, at that point we won't any longer have any need for prophetic words or for talking in tongues or any of those spiritual gifts at all. We won't need him anymore. At that point, we'll have the perfect, so we won't need the partial. So Paul is not a cessationist. Paul is a continuationist. He's a continuationist. And we'll talk a lot more about this in a couple weeks when we look at 1 Corinthians 14 together. But Paul is teaching here that the spiritual gifts are necessary and beneficial right now. And they will continue to be necessary and beneficial throughout this age until Christ returns, at which point they will expire. Now, verse 11 reiterates this point with an analogy that is strikingly appropriate this morning. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, kids, I need your help here for a second, okay? What are some things, I need you to shout out some answers here. What are some things that you do that your parents do not? What are some things that you do that your parents do not? Help me out. Go to school, okay? You go to school. That's one thing. Yeah, what else? Gymnastics? Yeah, that, that's, that is, yes, yes. The Marshall parents are not doing gymnastics any longer. Yes, okay, gymnastics, what else? Okay, I'm going to help you out here, okay? Here's one. Now, adults, I don't know if you know this, but there's a secret underground economy operating within our church, Okay? Every week here on Sunday mornings, deals are brokered and some people leave here excited and thrilled and some people leave here in tears. All right, kids in our church are trading Pokemon cards right underneath our noses. It's happening every Sunday. Now, I'm personally convinced that none of them have any clue how the game actually works, but they love trading the cards. It's their form of currency. So that's that's what they do on Sunday mornings. But, But adults... How many of you show up on Sunday mornings and bring your Pokemon card collection to trade? 
Anybody? Okay. Trip, thank you. Yeah. Because trading Pokemon cards like that is a kid's activity. When you're a child, you play games like Pokemon. But when you become an adult, you leave those things behind. Now, I know, I know some of you as adults, maybe you're trading, but you actually know how the game works and, and you know what the va- real value, like, it's a little different, okay? So, caveat. But, but you see, our spiritual giftings are like these Pokemon cards. They might be fun for now while we're kids. They might have value right now in our earthly economy. But when the perfect comes, when Christ returns, when we become fully mature, we won't have any need for them anymore. We won't need them any longer. Because something far greater will have come that will surpass that by a mile. And verse 12 is the clincher. Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly. So earlier I held up Paul's definition of love as this mirror that I asked you to look in and look at yourself. And here we have Paul holding up another mirror. Now think about a mirror for a minute. What kind of knowledge do you get through a mirror? What's the difference between a mirror and real life? Well, what you see in a mirror is always a reflection. It's always a reflection. It's not the real thing. It's a reflected image of the real thing. And for this reason, the ancient Jewish rabbis used to speak of this idea of a king who allowed himself to only be seen through a mirror. So so no one ever actually got to lay eyes directly on the king. No one got to look face to face with the king. But you would look in a mirror that reflected the king. You'd look this way and you'd see the image of the king over there. To see the king was to see the reflected image, not to see the actual king, right? And in some ways, that's what our knowledge of God is like in this world. It's like looking in a mirror. We see him, but we don't see him fully or directly. We see a reflection of him. And sometimes, and, and, and sometimes that reflection is dim. It's not crystal clear all the time. Sometimes it's a little cloudy. It's a little hazy. It's hard to see. And things like prophecy and tongues and, and the other supernatural gifts and knowledge and even something like teaching, what I'm doing right now, these spiritual gifts are like Windex that kind of clean that mirror and make it a little more clear so we can see a little better. But what we see is still a reflection. But y'all, when the perfect comes... When Christ returns, that will all change. The mirror itself has an expiration date. And we won't need it anymore because then we'll see face to face. We'll actually get to look at the king like this. So right now in this earthly life, all of our knowledge of God, all our knowledge of truth, of ultimate reality, all of it is always partial to some degree. But when Christ returns, when eternity begins, when the perfect comes, then we shall know fully No more mirrors, just the real thing. Face to face with God himself forever and ever and ever. And that brings us to verse 13. Verse 13 is the climactic final note of this love song. In verse 13, the triad of prophecy, knowledge, and tongues from earlier is superseded by a greater triad of faith, hope, and love. And for Paul, faith, hope, and love, these three virtues, they're the pinnacle of human existence. When Paul builds a video game character in real life, that character always has faith, hope, and love. These virtues are greater than all of the gifts. But notice what Paul says about love here in relation even to these other virtues. He says, all three abide. So unlike all all the spiritual gifts, unlike those, all three will last into eternity. But love, love is greater still. 
Love is greater than those virtues. And so love is greater than every spiritual gift, but love is also greater than every other virtue. In the end, love is most excellent. And so what does all of this mean for us today? Well, the final word of chapter 13 is the word love, quite appropriately. And then look at chapter 14, verse 1. What does Paul command in the very next line of this letter? Pursue love. Pursue love. Church, that's the point today. As you build the character of your own life, as you think about what quality or qualities to max out in your own character, it's not your gifting or your ability or your strength or your smarts, your athleticism, your musical ability, your, your power, your wealth. It's none of that. None of those things are matter most. It's love. It's always love. And so pursue love in your life. Pursue love. Pursue the kind of love you see pictured here. Become this kind of person. Pursue love. Now I'll finish with this. God's character is described in many places throughout the Bible. But to my knowledge, there is only one place where his character is explicitly equated with a noun. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, God is love. God is love. The very character of God himself is love. God is maxed out on love. And for that reason, most all of what Paul wrote about love in this passage could equally be said of God. As we affirmed earlier, that is not true of us, but it is true of God. And because God is love, and because God so loves us, he gave his only son. He sent Jesus Christ into the world to live a life of perfect love and to die a sacrificial death in our place. And though we have failed to love as we ought, on the cross, Jesus bore all things for us. He bore all our failure. He bore all our sin. He bore all our penalty. And he died in our place, in your place, to show you just how much God loves you. And then as we will celebrate next Sunday at Easter, on the third day, the God of love raised him from the dead. And as we look ahead to Easter, do you know what Easter means? Do you know what Easter means? Easter means that Jesus is alive right now, seated on the throne of heaven, enjoying the love of his Father face to face forever and ever and ever. And Easter means that one day, when the perfect comes, we who have believed in Jesus will likewise sit in the presence of the God who is love and enjoy the love of the Father face to face forever and ever and ever. You see, if you are a believer in Christ today, love is your duty, but love is also your destiny. Love is your duty, but love is also your destiny because God is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, for your great love for us, for your perfect love. We thank you for Jesus who came and embodied that love in the world and who in love gave his life that we might have life. I pray, Father, for those here today who maybe have not yet tasted your love. Would they drink deeply of it today? Would they know that you are love? And would they find love in you? 
And I pray for all of us, Father, would we be a people who are shaped, who are marked, who are maxed out on love? Would that be the quality that most defines us as a people? Would we put on love above all gifting, above all ability, above every, would we pursue love as Paul encouraged us to do here? Make us that kind of people, Father. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.